Welcome to the Military Child Education Coalition podcast, the show that highlights a wide range of challenges and triumphs that our military-connected kids experience. My name is Nikki Harrison, and I'll be your host today. We would like to say thank you for the support of the Mountain Home Officer Spouses Club for this episode. I am excited to have joining me today Dr. Daniel Perkins and Dr. Jennifer Carr, and I would love for you to introduce yourself for our listeners. Nikki, we're excited to be here. We're really thrilled to talk about some important topics. Jennifer and I have been doing some really cool, we think very cool research. We hope the listeners think so as well. I'm Danny Perkins. I'm a professor at Penn State University, and I direct the Clearinghouse for Military Family Readiness. And with me is Dr. Jennifer Carr. Sure. Thank you, Danny. I'm Jennifer Carr. I'm a research and evaluation scientist at the Clearinghouse for Military Family Readiness. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. So, Dr. Perkins, you talked a little bit about that Clearinghouse for Military Family Readiness. Can you let our listeners know what that is exactly? Nikki, thank you for asking, and please call me Danny, because when you say Dr. Perkins, I can only think of what my mom would say, which is, I'm not a real doctor. Just call me Danny. Please. Well done. Great. The Clearinghouse for Military Family Readiness was started in 2010, and the DOD started us to really look at what was being done to support military families, look at the programs that existed in the world, and vet them on a continuum of how much evidence is there they work. And through that process, we have vetted well over 1,400 different types of programs, everything from smoking sensation to parenting, to adolescent mental health, and we have this continuum. For the most part, that resource is for providers that are serving military families. What we have for parents is the DOD in about 2014 said, we'd like you to create a parent-based program online for parents who have children 0 to 18. We've created four programs based on ages, and they're all online. So if you're a parent of a three to five-year-old, you can go to thrive.psu.edu and take the online modules focused on kids ages three to five. Or if you're a parent of one to three, you could take the online module focused on, excuse me, zero to three. Lots of different resources that Clearinghouse does a lot of work around evaluation. In fact, what we'll talk about today, Jennifer and I will talk about really focused on the work we've been looking at in terms of the policies that have been set up to support Military Connect kids and how well they're rolling out across the 50 states and the District of Columbia. Great. I think that's really good to let our listeners know what the Clearinghouse is, what it does, really who can utilize that tool, because I think that's important, and for parents, of course, to know about Thrive, because I think that's fantastic. Anytime we can do any sort of parent support training and education is great. What I want to really talk about are what are some of those risk factors for our military-connected students, because I think that's really important. And is there one particular risk factor that stands out more than others? There are several risk factors when we think about military-connected children and their school success. These fall into a couple different categories. There are military-related risk factors, so those risk factors that are very specific to them being connected to the military. And then there are normative risk factors. So military-connected children have a shared experience around being a part of the military, but they also 
have experiences just like any other kids in this country do. Some of the military-related risk factors, things related to being geographically isolated, if they're at a remote installation, barriers to help-seeking, having a dual military family introduces new challenges to, to, to the situation. Some of the uh, normative risk factors, these fall into several different categories, and we can think about things such as social isolation and less, less some coping strategies that aren't as effective as opposed to the more effective coping strategies. And of course, parent mental health plays a big role in child outcomes as well. And really, when it comes to the risk factors, it's not necessarily maybe one specific risk factor. In fact, when you think about risk factors, just because you have a risk factor does not necessarily mean that there are going to be problems or issues. It's just something that we want to take a look at and be cognizant of the potential challenges. But when we start looking at multiple risk factors, that's when we really start seeing more of the issues that, that might come forward. Yeah, Jennifer, I want to tag on that. I, I'm a visual person, so I think about the fact that a risk factor is like a brick, right? So if you pick up, you can pick up a brick, it's not a problem. You could probably pick up two bricks, maybe three. But when you get to four or five or six, it gets hard, it gets heavy. Really hard to pick up that brick and deal with that many bricks at one time. So risk factors are like that. Some risk factors could, in fact, not be a big deal. But when you put them with other risk factors, it creates a lot of weight. And it's really hard to pick them up. So having, for example, dual military parents, not necessarily a bad thing, but it means there's a lot of stress in the house. There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of things happening. And so if you include that with a couple other things that might be stressful, then it's, the stress starts going up, right? And so really we want to think about understanding that it's the multitude of risk and not just one risk at all that's going to predict who's doing well. With one exception, and I'll say that carefully and to say, if in fact the parent who's not leaving the home for deployments or having to TDY is struggling with their stress, it really is hard for the child not to feel that. So when the parent who's at home is really struggling, the child will feel that. And it's a level of stress that's very significant. So we really want to think about when we support military-connected kids, we must think about how are we supporting their parents. That's really the critical part, right? Because if their parents are able to deal with the stress to the, and cope well, Generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, the child's going to do okay. Absolutely. And I think that's such an important point to make, especially as someone who is a military parent and being very cognizant of kids see everything and they pick up on everything. A lot of times when you don't even realize that they do as a parent you're Sometimes like you wish they would wish they wouldn't so yeah so i think being cognizant of that as a parent and having the support and training that we need as well is really important so i know you yeah i want to jump on yeah. that real quick because i think it's really important you don't have to do it alone nor should you do it alone i think of course everything could be made better we need to keep working on it but if you're within the military you should make use of the supports available because you're being asked to move a lot. And that's not true for most Americans, right? We're not asked to move that much. That's a piece of stress. Again, it's one brick. But when you add it with a couple of other bricks, it becomes a lot. You know you've got an extra brick. You need to make sure you take care of yourself in the sense of utilize those around you. The military, to some degree, looks out for each other. 
And we need to feel comfortable saying, hey, I could use a little help here. Can I put you down as an emergency contact? Because I'm in New Mexico and I don't have any family here. I have no emergency contact I can put down. So we need to think about how do we help each other out because we have are in a, a lifestyle where it requires us to be sometimes further away from extended family than we would like. So we need to garner those around us and be a part of our family. And I think being comfortable to ask for that help, because I think as as military families, we're so used to to doing it alone, right? We're so used to being really strong and you've got this and trying to do it, trying to carry the load by ourselves, but knowing that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to ask for support. I think that's really important. It doesn't mean that you're showing a sign of weakness, right? You're, And I think in the military, you know, we sometimes make some of those correlations between those two things. And so I know you talked about the compounding effects of the risk factors really being the issue, maybe not just one risk factor in and of itself, but so are there certain types of risks that predict certain outcomes? All these outcomes are related to each other, right? So your mental health outcomes, your social emotional development, your outcomes, your academic outcomes, those are all intertwined very heavily. So if you don't have good social emotional resources, if you don't have good self-regulation, if you don't have that self-efficacy, that's absolutely going to affect um, your academic outcomes. And I think this is the part where I think those are really about what the individual brings, but the individual lives in a context, right? And for example, the school setting and the supportiveness of the school setting can, in fact, be a buffer against some of the stresses and challenges an individual is facing. And for example, when we think about the Purple Stars program, if that is done well, right? And we're, we're giving young people opportunities because they're moving. We're giving them opportunities to connect quickly, to build social connections quickly and support systems. That is more likely to help them stay focused on, for example, the academics. Three, that is when you move from one state to another, not having to stress out about, oh, I have to learn Alabama history, even though I learned Pennsylvania history. Getting those things in line reduces stress, allows the young people to really focus on the things that, not that they're not important, but they've already learned one part of the United States history that's good. But let's focus on those other things. How do we make life a little more predictable for them? Because we know predictability helps. We know it. There's no question. So if you set up some predictability within the school, within the home, wherever you can, accepting it won't be 100%, nothing ever is, that helps them. It helps guide them. It gives them the lanes they're in, right? And yes, of course, you might have to cross over a lane once in a while, but trying to bring them back to the predictability helps them see, oh, I can make through, I can get through some of the stuff and go. And I think that's where... We have to think about how do we create contexts that support individuals. So not so much switching your question, not really answering your question, Nikki, because I think what we really want people to do is think about how do I create protective factors, places for people to feel supported. Yuri Profitbetter was a really famous social scientist, so of course nobody knows him except us social scientists. <laughs> but he said something really powerful. He said every child needs someone 
absolutely crazy about. And that is one of the best predictors of who's going to get through the stuff of life and come out okay. Because we all need people in our lives that sort of say, hey, I'm going to be a balcony person to this person. I'm going to focus on positive. I'm going to cheer for them. I'm going to do what I can to support them. We don't need basement people. We don't need people bringing people down. And I think Yuri's statement there is there's so much data that shows that. But he didn't go to the data and talk about it. He just said, look, if we just got everyone to focus on one child and say, I'm crazy about this kid, it's a huge protective factor that starts knocking some of those bricks out of the way so it's not so heavy. I like that. It just takes one person. I always feel when we're talking to our military-connected kids and we talk about schools and that transition that is really challenging at times, especially when they're new, it just takes one person, the teacher, the counselor, another student. For goodness sake, somebody in one of the earlier uh, sessions yesterday said the janitor. Even the janitor can make a difference in one kid's life in whatever kind of relationship they've created in the hallway, for goodness sake. So I think that- Well, and there's something the individual could do, right? We know from resiliency research that when an individual helps others and gets out of their own head about their own problems, it creates an opportunity to think about their challenges differently and shown to make a difference, right? Glenn Elder did a fantastic study of children in the Great Depression, and I'm- at living here, but he basically found that kids under age 12 during the Great Depression, when they got older, really struggled in lots of different areas of their life. They struggled maintaining relationships. They struggled holding on to a job. They, they had just a lot of struggles. But kids who were roughly 8, 12 and up, they did great. And here's why. And what he found out as he looked at this, he couldn't get over it. The kids who were 12 and up could go get a job. They weren't making much money during the Great Depression, like a penny or two. Bring it home, we put it in the, the middle of the table, and we have enough to buy a loaf of bread. So why is that so important? I'm contributing to something bigger than myself. That's a huge issue. We, we're talking about risk factors. They exist. We cannot ignore them. But we also have to think about how do we offset the risk factors? And those are the things we can do. How do we make that context a place that's supportive? How do we make sure we're asking young people to, to help each other out? Absolutely. I know we're talking about risk factors. And one of the ones I wanted to highlight was social isolation. I know that's one along with many others. And is there an increased factor for, is this an increased factor for our military connected children? And I only think about that because the military community and families are highly mobile. So constant transition movement that in and of itself can create some social isolation, especially when you're moving to a brand new area and you know no one. Yeah, it has the potential to. So you're just talking about the different moves, moving from one place to another or moving to a new school that has a lower population of military connection students as opposed to being at a school where there is a higher population. There's certainly the potential of moving to a really remote area. You may have more military-connected kids, but you might not have the support or the, sorry, the extracurricular activity that you were involved in before, right? So there's definitely the potential for more of the social isolation, um, but there's a lot of things that we can do to help mitigate that risk, right? There's lots of programs um, 
that, that have been implemented. Um, extracurricular activities um, appear to be really beneficial because it's really good at, um, you know, getting the, the kid integrated into the, the new school and helping them make friends. Um, so there's a lot that we can do to offset that risk. Yeah. And I think your point about social isolation is real, right? And I think it's one of the things we see it in adults too, right? We've been doing, I've been doing a lot of work looking at veterans and we certainly see that veterans who are reporting higher social isolation, not having um, extended family nearby, they struggle more. It's just the data really is very clear on that. So how do we, to Jennifer's point, how do we really think about creating those opportunities? What did the pandemic do? The pandemic had us hauled up in our homes and not interacting. And so now we're about a year out of the pandemic and we still have some growing pains. And I think to be fair to young people, it really was turning on a dime. And I was talking about predictability earlier. It wasn't predictable. We hadn't <laughs> gone through that in over a hundred years. And so I think we do need to pay attention that we really need to be, I would say, vigilant on ensuring we're not isolating. And we have to create opportunities to have a pizza party up, up the street or get together just to do that because it's really important we help folks see being connected is a part of being human and in a town or in a community because that way we can rely on each other, laugh a little bit with each other. It's really important. It is really important. And I when you were saying that connection piece, the what came to mind was a friend of mine who said she's trying to be more intentional in her interactions with friends and those and building those relationships with others and maintaining those relationships. So now we're on to the protective and promotive factors. Well, thanks for joining us because some of us have been there the whole time. What are some of those protective and promotive factors? So there are several different protective and promotive factors that fall into different categories. So when we're thinking about internal factors, self-efficacy, effortful control, which is self-regulation, having effective coping strategies, Think about interpersonal protective factors, so positive social relationship, participation in programs, and then community protective and promotive factors. So school climate, having a school climate that's welcoming to military kids, parental community connections that can be helpful as well. And just really an understanding of the community of the military lifestyle. These can all serve as protective and promotive factors. So Jennifer, I hate the term effort, pull, whatever you said. Can you please explain what that means to me? Sure. So it's the ability to pay attention and to have inhibitory inhibitory control. Another big word. She's making a lot of money today. Every time she uses a big word with me, she gets a quarter. <laughs> so that is being able to inhibit responses. There are different times in our life where we have to inhibit the responses that you want to blur something out, Dan. Like me, the way I just blur things out. Sometimes you shouldn't blur things out. You're, I get it. So it's really about being able to control when you should potentially say something or not say something. I think that's really helpful. I also think, and I want to go back to it, I think we need to think about how do we engage young people in making our world a better place? How do we engage young people in hey, let's get rid of the social isolation. Let's figure out what are you interested in? Maybe somebody else is interested. I think we spend a lot of time looking at our differences, a lot of time. And I'm just not convinced. When you get right down to human development, 
we're all going to develop similarly. Not perfectly the same. I'm not suggesting that. But there are some principles that play out there. Everybody needs somebody crazy about them. Doesn't matter who you are, you need that. So at the end of the day, how are we engaging young people to think about their role in that? How are we giving them opportunities to succeed and to also make mistakes in a supportive environment that lets them learn from mistakes? Can I answer that? Because I feel like I oh, have Oh, please, an if you have the answer, that's fantastic. <laughs> Actually, this is going to be a podcast that goes to millions if you have the answer. I think you have to. I think first off, for students, and this is just coming from someone that has a 17-year-old, I think we have to engage at their level, like on their level, right? We've got to, especially for adults, we have to lose the fear, the I don't understand, me trying to figure out TikTok, I've got to, I got to figure out TikTok because my kid's on TikTok. So, you know, I think it's engaging at their level, meeting them where they're at and asking them, asking them, right? How many times do we turn to our kids, our students and ask them, right? We, I feel like a lot of times we tell them things and make it more of a conversation and a dialogue. So that's just coming from my... It's really great. I think it's really good because actually my son, uh, was a huge TikTok person, and that used to irritate me. And I know it's hard to imagine me being irritable, but it did irritate me a little bit. And it actually, it, I would love to say it was me, but that would be not truthful. My wife said, can you show us what, what you do when you're on TikTok? No, TikTok, excuse me. And, and actually, that was really brilliant because it, what it did was it opened the, it opened the communication to have a conversation. Yep. I still don't like TikTok. I think it's a huge waste of time for me. But nonetheless, I could get why he enjoyed it. And then we had a conversation about, could we think about what else we could do in addition to TikTok? And that was really helpful for me. And I think for him, although, and mine is 18, going to be 19 this week. I've already passed the 17. You will get past that in a very positive way. Fed. And hopefully, and we'll continue down that. But don't focus on the risk factors. I want you to really spend time on the protective The factors. protective factors. Nikki, we're going to work with you on it. <laughs> I've got to stay in the positive side, not in the things that have ne kind of some negativity. No, you need to know them, right? And we need yeah. to, to your point, we, we've been talking a lot, but to your point, what can we do about is really the important part, right? right? But there are certain things we can do something about. And there's you're in a dual military family, you're in a dual military family. So what does that mean? It means there's a little more stress. So what can we do to try to re reduce the stress? We can't do anything about the fact there's going to be a little more stress, but we can figure out how, to, how do we try to reduce it, create some predictability, figure out ways we can engage our community in ways that we're really working together a little bit more. Those are the kind of things we do control. We do not control that we're in a dual military family and there's a little more stress around that. For sure. So at MSIC, we have quite a few parent support initiatives and we talk about this idea of uh, a web of support for students. Having a, a, a trusted group of adults and peers, could this be considered a protective factor for students? Absolutely. My, my concern would be I'm a little bit afraid of spiders, so I prefer not to use the web of support kind of notion there. I just will say that, right? I like to think more about a lot of hugs around the room, maybe. <laughs> Actually, if I think if you look at our, like our graphic, it's circles. Oh, circles. Okay, so it's great. not quite like a spider web. It's like a circle of support. 
And I think your point's well taken, right? The reality is, uh, I think we all need a web of support. So earlier you mentioned the pandemic, and we've learned quite a bit over the past few years on how the pandemic has drastically affected children and particularly teens. We're really talking about a lot about teens. So my question for you is, are the kids okay? Okay, I'm going to answer that. I think the question is a great question. It's an awful broad question to to ask. And of course, Nikki, I'm not surprised you asked it because you're brilliant in so many ways. Thank you. Yeah. But I would say I think the kids, just like the adults, are trying to be okay. And I think that's part of the conversation we're having today is are we creating a place where people can come out of that and thrive, Right. So resiliency is this notion of bouncing back. Okay, we've gone through a, some stuff. It's been a difficult and we're, we get through that okay and we're back. But really, if you think about a rubber band and resiliency is like that, right? You've been stretched. When it goes back, does it go back exactly to the same circumference? Probably not. It's probably been stretched a little. So is that an opportunity for growth? Yes. In fact, we see there's a great book called Third Culture Kids, which really talks about military kids and kids living overseas. Their worldview is it's different, and I would argue bigger than, oh, went to figure out myself, than someone who never really grew up but in one place. And so I think we have to think about, are kids okay? I think they're becoming okay. I think they're still struggling because they had a, world pandemic, slap them in the face pretty quickly. And overall, I'd say they're doing okay. And probably if I was a betting person, I would bet they're going to do better than the last generation because it's a growth opportunity. And most of them have a growth mindset. I like it. They're becoming okay. They're getting there. They're getting there. Sure. Now, what about the parents? Are the parents okay? Are we ever going to be okay? I don't know. I don't think we're never going to be back to whatever that normal was, yeah. right? I, I don't think that's fair to say, but I think we have to be, right? We have to keep growing and learning. And were people okay before we had cell phones? Yeah, they were okay. If you ask somebody now, would they be okay without a cell phone and being able to get a hold of someone? No, they would tell you no because it's part of their worldview, right? But in reality, is I think we're pretty good at adapting. And we thrive in general. So I know we're talking about those promotive and protective factors. And so let's talk a little bit more about implementation. What does programming look like? And what programs are recommended to decrease those risk factors that we've discussed that kind of help? I know we talked a little bit about, you might have talked a little bit about the Purple Star Schools Initiatives. That's a program that's hopefully supporting. What else is there? I think what you want to really do is be critical when you look at a program and you want to look at its components, right? And so when you do that, for example, if we take mentoring, in and of itself, mentoring could be a very positive, powerful program, but the devil's in the details here. So have has the mentoring program taken the time to align the mentor and the mentee with similar interests together? Because we know that actually really does predict how well that relationship is going to go. And that relationship is the bedrock of how useful that, that, that program is going to be for that young person and the mentor, by the way. So the same thing's true if you think about 
other school programs. There's lots of folks selling programs. And what you really need to do is say, that's really interesting program. Do you have any data that I can look at to show me what kind of outcomes are linked? If I don't have any data to back it up and I just say something works, that doesn't actually mean it works. So having some real data is really important. And if you're really interested in a program, a school-based program, go to the clearinghouse. We have a searchable database. If it's not on there and it's something you want us to take a look and see what's the level of evidence this thing actually does what it says it's going to do, we can do that because that's what we're supposed to do for the DOD. So really encourage folks, it's great to be healthy, a healthy skeptic when it comes to a program. But I will also tell you, it doesn't take a program for everyone to be crazy about a kid. So that's really something we ought to be thinking about. When you walk into a school where you can tell people care, that's a good sign. Mm -hmm. And that's not a program. That's a mindset, if you will. That's an attitude. You got to be part of the solution for that attitude to work, right? And I think we need to hold ourselves accountable, all of us, yeah. on that. So the metrics, whether they're quantitative or qualitative, are significant. And looking at those metrics could be a way to develop effective programming, to test your program. You've developed a program. You've implemented your program. Let's look at how effective it is, and let's look at those metrics. Sure. You definitely should be doing evaluation. I'm glad you brought it up. Everyone, when they hear evaluation, they think of these massive, huge evaluations. Doesn't that be a massive, huge evaluation? You can just take a look. What was being done in this program? I picked on mentoring. Did they take the time to have the mentor and the mentee line up by their likes, by their interest? Because if they didn't, you might say, why didn't they? Because we know that's really important, right? It's easier for folks to grow together if they have similar interest. They don't have to be exactly the same. In fact, you probably don't want them exactly the same. Same thing there. Trying to figure out what's the reasonable metric. Does the child like it? That's an important part. Satisfaction is important because if nobody's satisfied, they're not coming back. But it's not sufficient to get to perhaps some of the outcomes you want. And so you do have to take a look at the literature or, again, talk to someone at the clearinghouse and we'll help you think through that. That's great. And I think that's really good to know that you can help in that way. Because I think sometimes the most daunting task is analyzing my program. It takes me back to grad school and me having to do SWOT analyses for lots of different things. So I, that makes me think about Did that. Did you go to the police academy? <laughs> SWOT analysis? I'm not familiar with that. I know, right? Or should date how long I've been out of grad school. That's probably what that does. Finally, in conclusion, what can we do better to support our military-connected students? Is it more research? Is it that training piece? Is it universal screening? Because we're talking about that quite a bit. Yeah, all of it. Um, <laughs> all of it, all of it together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we definitely need more research. The research related to military-connected students' educational success is really in its infancy. So we really need a lot more research to dig in, to dig into all of those specific factors, all the interactions, all of those things that we really need to know. Certainly more training. I mean, we can always, everybody can always be more trained up on on things, right? More training for teachers to make sure that they're understanding military culture, more training for parents to make sure they understand all the programs that are available to them. So all of these things can certainly help. Yeah, I actually think you answered your question already. 
I think we all need to be a little more intentional about what we're doing when we are with each other. Not just young kids, but certainly kids, right? Are we being a person that is lifting them up? Are we being a balcony person? Or are we in the basement? Are we just pointing out the mistakes that are made? Are we thinking, oh, that was great that you did that? And I think yeah, that intentionality then requires to what Jennifer said, requires us to really look carefully from a research perspective, from a programming perspective. Is this really working or not? Because we want to be intentional, right? We don't want to do things that we don't, that actually don't work. That's really a waste of time. None of us have that much time, right? So I think that really is the answer is us spending resources, spending research, but then being real intentional to understand, are they working? Are we reducing stress? Are we lifting people up? Are we helping create predictable situations for them to succeed? I'm going to start thinking about programming or start thinking about evaluation and programming as really intertwined. So anytime there is a program, there should be an evaluation, right? Because there's different circumstances, there's different situations. Something might work in one situation, but not in another. We're not thinking on any particular program saying that, oh, that, sh that should be evaluated because we really need to find out. Everything should be evaluated. I'm putting my cynical side Cynical, cynical person aside for a minute, everybody has good intentions when they make programming, right? Everybody wants to do something good for the population that they're making a, a program for. So nobody's out there with, with ill intentions or anything. Everybody wants the world to be better. But sometimes there's, it just doesn't quite go as planned. Sometimes things don't quite work out the way that we think that they're going to work out. So if we pair up that program and the evaluation piece together and just think of them as a singular thing, then that would help push us forward which I know sometimes is the challenge, right? Because we're all maxed out and our plates are overflowing and it's just one more thing, but it's really significant to do that and, and do them together. Uh, I think that's a really good point. I just want to tag on this seriously because I think what we end up doing is say, well, we got to measure six things. No, you don't. Just measure one and see if it works. If it doesn't, that's fine. Next time, measure another one. We really push ourselves to do, let's throw the kitchen sink in and figure out if this thing works in any way. Don't start there. How about just start with one ingredient and see if that's there. And it's okay if it's not there. Maybe there was something else that you, oh, actually, it didn't impact this, but I think it didn't impact that, but it really impacted it. We were looking at the wrong thing. But you won't get there if you don't do it. And if you do six things, you'll overwhelm yourself. Absolutely, yep. Yep. This was a fantastic conversation. Oh, I let it. I'm not surprised I, you're saying that. I've enjoyed it. I think it's been so informative. I think it's so important. And I think really we need to do all the things to continue to improve and make the world a better place for all of our kids. But of course, really our military kids and supporting them in every way. Thank you again. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Nikki. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Dr. Perkins and Dr. Carr for their time today, as I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, and give today's show a five-star rating. And don't forget to leave us a comment on topics you'd like to hear more about. We'd like to give a special thanks again to the Mountain Home Officer Spouses Club for supporting this episode and Consentus Media for audio mixing. I'm Nikki Harrison, and until next time, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. Be kind.